Amen. Thank you, Judy. We're continuing on in our study in the book of Revelation as we looked at a heavenly hymn last time. And this time we want to take another peek into paradise in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And ask you to stand our great God's honor as I read aloud the text, His precious word. Then I saw... In the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept. Because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking As if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this peek into paradise, this glimpse into glory, we thank you for the Lamb. Father, I just pray uh, that we might continue to fix our full gaze upon you, the one who is the center of heaven, and Father, that you might draw us close to you, and Father, this worship hour, we want to worship you, we want you to be pleased, so enable us, Lord, To see Jesus, in whose wondrous name we pray, amen. One of the verses most quoted in the church is uh, Romans 3, 23, that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we... We're honest with ourselves. We know that inside of us there is an inadequacy. That we do fall short. That we miss the mark. Especially in regard to the true holiness of God. But the scripture tells us. That is not just an individual problem that happened. When sin entered but that the whole creation was impacted. Uh, Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Starting at verse 19 of Romans 8, we read, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration... Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope 
that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Presently, creation itself is trapped in a bondage. And it is a bondage to decay. That is the present situation because of sin. Notice as we go on, it says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So there's a groaning in creation itself. Verse 23, Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit have Jesus groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This wasting away, this uh, our bodies failing us, is just a sign that we are moving toward the redemption of these bodies and creation itself is moving toward redemption. And, and we're going to look at this morning to the one who is the author of that, to the one who is in full charge of that glorious truth that is awaiting us all in Christ. You see, there is uh, almost a picture now as we speak of God in this culture that God is like this cosmic force that we can kind of tap into and gain strength from. But he is far more than some type of cosmic force. We hear terms like universal oneness, human potential, holistic health, the divine within, Christ consciousness. One particular book by Rhonda Byrne called The Secret, she wrote these words. She said, you are God in a physical body. You are spirit in the flesh. You are eternal life expressing itself as you. You are all power. You are all wisdom. You are all intelligence. You are perfection. You are magnificence. You are the creator. And you are creating the creation of you on this planet. The earth turns on its orbit for you. The birds sing for you. The sun rises and sets for you. The stars come out for you. Take a look around. None of it can exist without you. No matter who you thought you were, now you know the truth of who you really are. You are the master of the universe. You are the heir to the kingdom. You are the perfection of life. And now you know the secret, which is the title of her book, The Secret. And let me tell you, folks, this is no secret, she proclaims. This is an age-old lie. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where the serpent asks, wouldn't you like to be like God. That is the source of this teaching. You see, the truth of the matter is, the world does not revolve around me, and it does not revolve around you. There is one who is in control, and it's not us. It is the Lord Himself who is in control. What are we? It says in James chapter 4 that... We are like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James gives this advice, if it's the Lord's will, uh, go to this or that city, carry on business there, spend a year, do your work. (laughs) But don't boast and brag about what you're going to do. Why? Because you're not in charge. It is the Lord who is in charge. Rather, our prayer should be like 
the model prayer Jesus gives us in Matthew 6.10, where he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will, not my will. You see, it's a false religion that tries to put us at the center of everything because the simple truth is, we are not. And we're going to look at the one who is at the center this morning as we discover a secret scroll. Notice the first part of the scripture. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. In the ancient days, in the time the book of Revelation was revealed and and penned by John, the readers would understand this picture of seven seals that would speak of documents that were important. One of these would be a will by the Romans that had to be sealed by seven witnesses. In order to make that will valid, there had to be seven witnesses who were present for that seal to be affixed. And in a way, as we talk here of the seven spirits, we see a picture of the perfect God and the perfect Holy Spirit who is giving witness that this earth, all of creation, belongs to God. This is all God's. Another document of importance was the title to land. It's spoken of in Jeremiah 32. There's a beautiful picture of this. God tells Jeremiah to go buy a piece of land in the territory of Benjamin for 17 shackles of silver. The irony of this is that Babylon is about to come in. Nebuchadnezzar is about to conquer. And the deed's going to be worthless for a while. But there are actually two title deeds. One is locked away in Jeremiah 32. And there are seven witnesses that are present. Seven seals. In order to make this deed official and appropriate. And the picture is one day God's people will come back to their land. And one day they will be able to retain this deed that has been put away. And they'll be able to claim that land. And this is a picture here that one day, Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, He will claim this place. He will take this rightful land that is His. And He, as the Supreme One, will take the title deed. Notice in verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scrolls? So there's a search. Looking for one who is worthy of this secret scroll to open it. Verse 3 says, No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll. Or even look inside. See, there was a search that's described here. And as they looked around, there was no one worthy. As you think of the patriarchs, 
Abraham. The friend of God. No. Isaac. Jacob. No. King David, a man after God's own heart. Not worthy to open the scroll. Joseph, who God would raise to the highest place to to save God's people from starvation. Not worthy. Isaiah, who saw the one on a throne seated high and lifted up and, and the train of his robe filled the temple. But Isaiah was not worthy. The Apostle Paul, who suffered greatly as he took the gospel to the world and God gave him boldness and courage. But Paul was not worthy. Neither was the Apostle Peter. And we can go on and on through the Scriptures. Or we can think of those mighty saints we love to read about. Martin Luther, who God gave courage Talk about the just shall live by faith. He's not worthy to open those scrolls. Neither is Jonathan Edwards or Charles Spurgeon or, or Hudson Taylor. Or I could go on and on with their names. Of those wonderful Christians. We love to read their biographies. But they were not worthy to open the scroll. Neither were those of other religions who were considered to be sacred prophets doesn't specifically mention it here. But I don't see Muhammad stepping up to open the scroll. Or Confucius. Or Buddha. Or Joseph Smith. Or the names go on. None of them are capable of opening this sacred scroll. I love This is from the words of a message by W.A. Criswell. Who is now with the Lord. For many, many years he was the pastor of... First Baptist Church in Dallas, he wrote these words. He said, John's tears represent the tears of all God's people through all the centuries. Those tears of the Apostle John are the tears of Adam and Eve driven out of the Garden of Eden as they bowed over the first grave, as they watered the dust of the ground with their tears over the silent, still form of their murdered son Abel. Those are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried unto God in their affliction and slavery. They are the tears of God's elect through the centuries as they cried into heaven. They are the sobs and tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they experience the trials and sufferings of life, heartaches, disappointments that are indescribable. Such is the curse that sin has laid upon God's beautiful creation. And this is the damnation of the hand of him who holds it. That usurper, the intruder, that stranger, that dragon, that serpent, that Satan. And John weeps. For the failure to find one to open the scroll and redeem this earth now consigned forever to death. It meant that death, sin, damnation and hell should reign forever and ever. And God's earth shall remain Forever in the hands of Satan. There was great weeping. Thankful that's not where the text ends. Let's go to verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The Lamb of God is worthy to open the secret scroll. Now, I want to look at this description of Him. First, I want you to see He is described as the Lion. This speaks of His majesty. He is the majestic one. I love the portrayal of Him in C.S. Lewis's classic children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. As 
the four kids come before the beavers and they're asking about this Aslan, this great one that the beavers speak about. In the midst of it, uh, as they listen to the description of Aslan, Susan, one of the children, asks, Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. (laughs) He is majestic. Secondly, he's from a tribe. Notice what we learn in the text about him. He is from the tribe. What does this speak of? It speaks of his humanity. Although fully God, the majestic one, he also, in the incarnation, is fully human. It is humanity. It, it speaks about in Matthew 13, 55, 56, about his family and his half-brothers, his family. And they said he's out of his mind in that passage in Mark 3, 21. <laughs> Pictures he made. Third, I want you to see specifically, he's from the tribe of Judy, Judah, which speaks of his nationality. The tribe of Judah's nationality. Genesis 49, verse 10 There's a prophecy that said the Messiah is going to come from that tribe of Judah. Fourth, the text tells us the worthy one is called the root of David. And this speaks of his royalty. The title son of David is revelation. He comes from David as the promised one, as the Messiah reveals his royalty. And then finally, the root of David refers to his deity. As the root of David, one commentator described it like this. He said, he who existed before David was the root of David. Think of it this way. He had his roots in David, but as far as his deity is concerned, he was the root of David. Genesis, I mean Genesis, Revelation 22, 16, second part of the verse says, I am the root and the offspring of David. He was not only fully man, he's fully God as the promised one. He told the religious teachers that hated him in John 8, 58, before Abraham was born, I am. The description of his deity that he is God. Then I want you to look at four observations that we learn about in the text. The next verse, verse 6. He had... Seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out on the earth. He came and took the scroll from the hand of him who sat on the throne when he had taken it. And we learn from him, uh, first in verse 6, he says, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. First I'll mention here, he's standing. What does this mean? The one who is in charge, as we will see later on in the book of Revelation, is about to carry forth his judgment. Why? Because he's the righteous judge. But not only is he standing, he has suffered. Notice what we learn about in that text. is 
looking as one who had been slain. There are still the scars of his crucifixion. The scars in his hands, the scars in his feet, the scar in his side where the spear was thrust. It reminds us of Thomas before he even touched Jesus, giving that request, Lord, I, I need to touch you to believe. But he didn't even touch him yet. He said, my Lord and my God, as he saw, he saw the scars. I love the story of the Sunday school teacher who asked her kids, said, is there anything man-made in heaven? And this one little boy, he raised his hand. He said, yes, ma'am. Well, what's man-made in heaven? She said, the scars of Jesus. Those scars are there. Why? To always remind us of the price that He paid upon that old rugged cross for you and for me. It is eternal evidence of what He has accomplished. Third observation. This lamb, this lamb is supreme. It speaks here of seven horns in our text it's a symbol of perfect and complete power. It was also the, the symbol of the Maccabee family who were heroes of ancient Israel between the, the gap of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament as they were faithful in defending God's people, the family of Maccabees. And it's a picture to, to God's people of, of power and strength. But the ultimate one, more than the Maccabees, is the Messiah. And his great strength. Fourth observation is the Lamb has sovereign omniscience. He is sovereign. The seven eyes speak of the fact he sees everything by his spirit. He doesn't miss a thing. It kind of frightens me, but also gives me hope as I think about Hebrews 4.13 that says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered. And laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account. He sees it all. He doesn't miss a thing. Our God. Notice in verse 7 it says, He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Uh, that verb in the original language is intensive, perfect. It emphasizes the permanence of his grip. It is a solid grip which no one can reach free. It speaks of the security of our Messiah and what He has accomplished by His perfect work. And He is the one able and worthy to take the scroll and to open the scroll and to carry forth the truth of the scroll. So stop weeping, John, and start singing. Redeemed ones... We, may, we must stop and we must realize that we are conquerors in Christ. That what awaits us in the future is not defeat, but it's victory. Um, I love the story. Erwin Lutzer, who's the pastor of Moody Bible Church in Chicago, tells a story of preaching through this section of Scripture. About the majesty of Christ. That he is the one in charge. And during the invitation, lady came down who was a professor 
at one of the universities in Chicago. And she taught world religions. But in that day, instead of seeing all the religions, she saw the relationship with God that she needed. I want to read this is from her testimony. She said, she writes, um, I came to recognize by God's grace that all the other religions in the world, that although they might tell me I'm a God, Christianity alone tells me I am a sinner. And she said it was at that moment she knew it was not about her trying to reach deity. It was about deity trying to reach her. And, and to give her that new life that she so desperately needed. And you see, we run into, man, when we get to these seals, there's some scary stuff that awaits the world. But praise be to God, there is one who offers redemption. The world waits for redemption, but so do the inhabitants of the world. So do people. You see, that's where it all happened to all of us. One day we came face to face with the fact, man, I am a sinner. I have missed the mark. And I need someone to save me, to help me, to redeem me. And there's only one, as this scripture tells us, who is worthy. It is the Lamb of God. And as I come to the end of, of this particular message... Uh, man, every message, I love what Spurgeon used to say. He said, you know, no matter what the text is, always make a beeline for the cross. And I want to do that in this time we call response. The one who is worthy to open the scroll is the one who is worthy to bring salvation to all of us. If you have not received that salvation, what a great day for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for another chance to open your word. I love your scripture in Psalm 119 that says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. We're all simple, Lord. But thank you that you give understanding by your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that the understanding that Jesus Christ is the only one who can provide salvation, forgiveness of sins, a brand new life, and start and hope and enter into a family uh, to someone to share it with here until we're with you there. And I pray... Uh, Father, as we think about you, that we would come to this altar as you call us, um, that we'd be willing to do business with however your spirit may be speaking to us, and that we will simply be obedient, Lord. As we stand, as we sing, may we follow you as you lead. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.